Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. It is the week of December 14th, and welcome to a special podcast of NSI Live, where we will explore some of the latest developments at the intersection of national security and technology. I'm Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute, and your host for this special edition of NSI Live. Today, I'm joined by a great group of NSI visiting fellows, Sam Kaplan, former assistant secretary of Homeland Security for Cyber Infrastructure and Resilience Policy, Katie Musaris, founder and CEO of Luda Security, and Dave Weinstein, former CTO and CISO of the state of New Jersey. Thanks all for being here. Really excited to have you. So, folks, this week, Reuters reporter Chris Bing revealed that hackers backed by Russia have been monitoring internal email traffic at the Department of Treasury's uh, NT- Department of Treasury and Commerce Department's NTIA, as well as potentially a number of other agencies. We're now hearing DHS, we're hearing DOD may have been targeted. So let's jump right in. Dave, what do we know at this point? What happened? You know, why do they think it's the Russians, uh, in particular APT29? What do we know? What do we not know? What are the open questions? Yeah, sure. Thanks, thanks, Jamil, for having me. And 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 let's start with what we know. And and I'll, I'll let my my other colleagues get in, into the attribution. But but on the on the tactics piece, uh, this is something that we've seen before, right? And and the overly simplistic view is that this was an indirect attack, right? That is to say that the attackers went after a supplier in order to to ultimately get to its customers. In this case, the supplier was. Solar winds, which uh, if if you haven't heard of that, uh, you're not alone. But it's very common uh, among uh, IT professionals, and and the attackers actually built a backdoor into this supplier software, which gave them the ability to push out compromised updates to customers and ultimately get into the network to to steal data. Now, uh, as I said, this this has happened before, which I think has has uh, contributed to to. Uh, to the attribution discussion. In, in 2017, the actors behind NotPetya, um, the worm that cost organizations around the world upwards of, of $10 billion, was delivered via a commonly used accounting software uh, in, 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 in Europe, right? Uh, the most significant difference, I would say, between this attack and, and uh, the most recent one, the one in 2017 versus, uh, versus this one, is that the latter seems to be far less automated. That is to say that the, the malicious code is not propagating in the way that, that NotPetya did, which quite frankly was uh, like wildfire. And, and to the contrary, early analysis uh, suggests that the attackers in, in this attack uh, employed a good deal of manual tactics to target their victims with the express goal of limiting widespread uh, collateral damage. So th- there's some some similarities and differences, um, but but this notion of indirect attacks that go after suppliers in order to to ultimately compromise the customers of the supplier was was what was common across both. So uh, so this is it. You see, we've got this sort of supply chain attack, and we know that Russia has been playing in the space for a long time. Have they are they getting better? Is what is this? What does this tell us? Is this a is this a sign that they've just gotten dramatically better or should we be really concerned? I mean, the, the widespread nature of this with 18,000 18, some customers of 300,000 SolarWinds has 
seems like a big number. Um, and the, the, the breadth of this across the government seems pretty uh, concerning. Should we be troubled? Are the Russians getting dramatically better? Or what's going on here? So I, I would argue that the measure of, of effectiveness in this particular attack, um, you know, to, to, to determine whether or not uh, the attackers are getting better or not, really uh, has to do with the degree to which this one was so tailored, right? So when you go back to 2017, uh, it's reasonable to assume that the attackers did not uh, necessarily intend to inflict damage on all the targets or all the victims of NAPETCHA, right? It, the, the, the collateral damage was widespread. Uh, in this case, uh, and, and we'll see what comes out over the coming weeks and months in terms of uh, additional disclosures of, of victims, um, they seem to have operated in a much lower and slower, more calculated manner, uh, which suggests, uh, in, in my opinion, uh, more sophisticated and, and, and advanced tradecraft. So, so let's talk about that, Katie, from a, from a technical perspective and a tradecraft perspective, right? How, how complex was this really? It seems like, I mean, they got pretty deep in, right? They were able to create accounts, apparently, uh, and, and, and obtain administrative privileges. Uh, was that a function of the, the techniques and the capabilities they used? Um, was it, a, was it an aspect of the fact they got into this particular network monitoring and, 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 and threat evaluation assessment platform? Um, and, or, and, and is this something that is particularly unique to a nation state or should we worry that other actors can sort of get into this space also? Well, and thanks for having me, um, Jamil. But I think that, you know, it's not necessarily that I'll start from your last question. Is this unique capabilities to a nation state? Um, it's not necessarily unique capabilities to a nation state. As Dave was saying earlier, you know, this is something that has happened before, that we have seen this type of, you know, hack a supplier and then use the supplier's access to um, to gain a foothold and gain persistent access. You know, so sort of a from Russia with love and this, this love is expressed in persistent access to your network. Um, I think that you know, from uh, from a technical perspective, it's not that necessarily it was technically sophisticated. Um, while the attacker themselves may be sophisticated in their strategy and goal, the technical elements of this don't seem to be, you know, particularly, um, you know, particularly sophisticated. I think that one of the key things to take away from this, you mentioned the um, 18,000 customers that had downloaded this Trojan version of SolarWinds, which, you know, was the was the affected and hacked software that was used by um, by these state actors to, to gain foothold. Um, 18,000 customers downloaded, but that was out of 33,000 customers of the affected software, right? So not all of SolarWinds customers are using Orion, which is the affected uh, software. Only about 33,000 of them are, and 18,000 of them had downloaded it. Now, a couple of, a couple of interesting points here. That's 45% of their customers that, of that product that did not download the affected software. Um, and that tells you how long it's been since they've patched, which is a different problem um, that, that lends itself to opportunistic as well as targeted actors um, when it comes to patch management and staying on top of things. I mean, if we look at the progress of different attacks um, that weren't as targeted um, per se, such as WannaCry. This is also one where the patch was available for several months before that worm, you know, uh, and that attack was realized in the real world. So I think that, you know, 
should we worry about this in terms of its commonality? I think that absolutely it's an efficient way for criminals or nation states to gain access to a number of targets by looking at um, software that's broadly deployed. Um, we've also seen this happen, um, you know, in terms of commonly installed software that is used. I think CCleaner was similarly backdoored, um, you know, for with this exact same type of technique. Um, so. What do I worry about? Uh, in the broadest sense, I worry about, you know, copycat criminals saying, aha, this is a much more efficient target list um, that will give us a broader target list. But two, um, we still have the unsolved problem. And this is like the dental hygiene of security of patches not being applied in a timely manner, allowing for windows of opportunity for other compromises. Um, this case, you know, the, the patch itself, the update itself was compromised. But that is, you know, that's a layer of depth to this that, to me, is less of a security emergency broadly than the fact that patch uptake is still one, it's still one of our best defenses, which we should have outgrown it by now, 20 plus years in the security industry. And two, that it's still so poorly, uh, you know, taken up by organizations that really should be applying those patches. Yeah. No, it's it's a great point, and so so almost it's 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 that both both parties uh, to this thing have been are vulnerable. The the people who do downloaded it and got the vulnerability, but the people who aren't downloading patches and don't realize they're vulnerable because they haven't patched. And so it's it's a sort of a, a pretty sharp edged uh, two sided sword. So Sam, you know, you just left the administration, right? Why? What what's going on here? Should we be really worried? I mean, and why do they target? Why do you think they started out, or at least where we found it first, Treasury and. Uh, in commerce, they seem like sort of maybe not the most obvious targets from a national security perspective. Uh, we're now hearing DHS and DOD potentially, but but why Treasury and commerce in particular, and uh, and how, how concerned should we be having just come out of the administration? Sure, uh, and Jamil, thanks for uh, letting me join you and sort of my colleagues in the fellows program here today. Um, yeah, having just come from the administration, I mean, I think there are things naturally to be concerned about. You know, Dave and Katie spoke about you know, some of the things with regard to sophistication of the hacking tools versus the sophistication of the strategy. And I think, you know, these are the types of instances when, you know, I was in government, any motivated actor can sort of hatch schemes and methodologies through which they can get get access um, like that. I, I think this, this is not necessarily endemic of something wrong. You know, the federal IT complex across the various departments and agencies it is very broad. And like we see in the private sector, you know, there are varying levels of sort of security and sophistication amongst the different departments and agencies. And, you know, DHS and CISA, through its role and its unique authorities, it's doing its best to sort of put out baseline standards and use some of its authorities through binding operational directives. And like the emergency directive we saw come out yesterday to sort of increase those baseline standards. But at the end of the day, those networks are still managed by the individual departments and agencies that gave them sort of the flexibility to create networks that better suit their missions, that are better sort of resourced to their relative risk profiles. Um, so it, it is truly a federated system. But um, I, I think, you know, continuing to look at how those things are managed and sort of security is managed across the infrastructure is something um, I, I think that CISA has, has been looking at is going to continue to look at. Um, as to your other question with regard to sort of treasury and commerce, um, I, I think this is still an unfolding story. Um, you know, having worked really closely with sort of the hunt teams and the folks in CSD over at CISA that are, I'm sure, you know, burning the candle at both ends to uh, sort of get on all these networks and unpack um, 
the, the true scope and breadth of this. I in, Invariably, we're going to see other departments and agencies probably involved uh, in this hack. Um, again, this goes to sort of the sophistication of, of the strategy, um, you know, not touching on the attribution, but if this is a foreign nation state, you know, you have to look at some of these disparate departments and agencies and uh, from a more holistic standpoint. And there's parts of the federal government that you wouldn't think would be involved in sort of the national security complex or the national defense complex that we would typically associate. I see departments, DOD, Homeland Security, law enforcement. There is a whole trove of agencies out there that have really crucial supporting roles to the national defense and national security. And they're, you know, industry security regulators. They are um, some of the sector specific agencies. I, I think there are swaths of information out there that is available that, you know, if you get the right sophisticated actor who knows what to do with the right sort of trove of information, anybody that's motivated can get into these. And then the flip side is make use of the information. So I, I think this is an unfolding story that's going to continue to unpack. Um, if this highlights anything that I hope people sort of take away is, you know, the, the federal government and agencies that a lot of people wouldn't associate do have really important information and data that is highly attractive to a very motivated, uh, you know, malicious actor. Got it. Got it. Well, you know, Katie, I wonder, you know, given um, uh, what we just heard about, about the ways that CISA and, and, the, and the government more broadly might, might, might deal with this issue, how do you think, what do you think the best way to mitigate the, the sort of the ongoing damage uh, is? And, and also, how do we think about protecting against these things in the future? I know you said earlier, one of the keys is you got to keep up patching and, and do that sort of basic hygiene, uh, you know, uh, sort of the dental hygiene, as you described it. Uh, what else should we be thinking about? You know, a lot of people talk about, you know, the need to share information, the need to, for collaborative or collective defense. What, what about that stuff? Is there, is there anything that sort of, are there game changing ways we can address the fact that these major nation states are coming at us at scale and speed and we're just we're just not particularly, we're not as good as we could be, at least uh, on the defensive side. Well, I, I, you know, not to, not to contradict, you know, anything that, that has been done in the last four years, you know, uh, during this particular administration towards strengthening, strengthening our national cyber defense, because I think that a lot has been done. It's just that uh, I feel like a cohesive strategy from um, from our government has been missing in terms of cybersecurity. We felt that, you know, very distinctly with the um, the elimination of the cyber coordinator position when Rob Joyce was let go, um, and and I feel like there from from a catching up perspective, we do have some catching up to do in terms of figuring out how we are going to um, fit in terms of uh, the national. Uh, international norms in terms of cyber cyber defense and cyber offense. Um, and then I think, and maybe this will be popular or unpopular, depending on the bent of your listeners, but, you know, we have to look at economies of scale, not just for defense and, and shoring up our own cybersecurity defensive capabilities, but we frankly have to look at economies of scale for our offense as well. And this type of technique where you're going after a particular uh, link in the supply chain, well, you know, this actually goes back to when the supply chain, you know, the weakest link in the supply chain was your operating system itself. 
right? And this is the this is sort of the the origin story of major corporate vulnerability response and capabilities and coordination. And um, you know, I think that to catch up, we're going to have to have one a very concerted effort coming from the top, and hopefully, this incoming administration is going to see the value of uh, a coordinator position to to help all of the U.S. government, um, not just defend itself, but figure out the right strategies for offense as well, and increase our, you know, public-private partnerships in a way that, you know, that protects our infrastructure, protects our economic advantages, um, whatever we have left after this pandemic, and takes us into the next era. Um, what I think from, you know, mitigating the damage of what, you know, of what has been done with this attack, we'll, we'll see, you know, as the damage uh, assessment begins to unfold and we see other affected agencies. But um, one thing I do think is a little bit of of sort of a missed opportunity, at least the way that it's being laid out right now, is, you know, Sam mentioned the binding operational directives that are being issued by DHS. There's one that's near and dear to my heart. It's the one for vulnerability disclosure and vulnerability handling, where, you know, you have to have a front door for people to outside the U.S. government to report a security issue to you. That wouldn't have helped in this particular instance, right? That, that would have had nothing, no bearing whatsoever on this attack. And so what I, what I see is a convergence of thought where people say, well, if you just have a vuln disclosure program, then breaches won't happen. And that is not just a leap. It is, it is a misdirected uh, bunch of effort. As you can see, there was a lot of additional effort that needed to happen internally to not just this organization, but also, you know, in its suppliers. And I think we're beginning to see that legislatively. We've seen uh, an IoT bill come out where it says thou shalt not buy new IoT unless, unless it has a vuln disclosure program, you know, associated with it, right? Which is nice, but we're going to, it's, it's going to take years to get us, you know, in a position where we can reasonably defend the sprawling infrastructure that we have at the government, uh, you know, the private and public level. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point and a, and a really challenging one. You know, it makes me wonder, uh, Sam, are there are there particular other threat actors or or sort of campaigns or areas that we should be we should be particularly worried about looking forward? I mean. Uh, you know, so obviously we've, we, you know, we've heard the alleged attribution here um, and I know you don't want to get into that, but, but talk to us about like what other uh, players are out there or types of categories of actors that we ought to be worried about um, in this space, uh, you know, to Katie's point about how we think about the defensive side. The typical suite of sort of nation state actors who I think would have the, the motivation and the capability to sort of execute on, on something like this. And, and, you know, there's um, different and, you know, trying to sort of stray away from some of the uh, information that I had uh, <laughs> access to when I was inside the government. But, you know, there, there are sort of disparate motivating factors for each of these nation states that are out there. And I, I think it's sort of a, a complex analysis that you really need to go through, especially when you're looking at the defensive side um, at, you know, what are inspiring these people to act? You know, what information are they potentially going after? What are the potential uses of this information? You know, some are looking at sort of acquiring information for acquiring information's sake. Some are looking for tactical uses. Some are, on the other hand, just looking for disruptive um, effect or impact. Um, and, you know, looking at sort of those motivating factors when you're sort of creating a risk profile, especially on the defensive side, it can be complex. And, you know, Jamila, it actually goes back to sort of your earlier question when you're looking at your why commerce and why NTIA. 
you know, when you're looking at these <laughs> different agencies and sort of the, the data and information that they may have housed, it, you can't really extrapolate that from the motivating factors of the threat actors that are trying to get in there. So it really does create sort of a three-dimensional chess picture that you have to really continue to play when when you're looking at sort of these these risk factors. Um, and, and I think that's that's very complex. And you know, like Katie was just saying about the vulnerability disclosure programs, you know, there's there's no single set of solution on the defensive side that's going to address each one of these actors. VDP is great. And that binding operational that directive that went out is, you know, it, it, it is truly trailblazing, not because it focuses on VDP, but because it's one of CIS's first instances in using its authority to go after policies rather than, you know, discrete, discrete tactics for the agencies to implement. But, but again, these aren't one size fits all solution. And I think the government looking at that um, and especially, you know, CISA, the Intel folks, the DOD folks, and sort of architecting out motivating factors and what they're going after is going to be a really sort of three-tiered, um, you know, risk profile picture that, that you need to start constructing for the federal government complex. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great. Um, so, so, Dave, I wonder, you know, if we, if we think about the, this sort of threat actors and the way that Katie is thinking about um, you know, the need to, the need to, for the government to do more. Are there things that we could be doing differently on the policy side in particular? Uh, we talked about binding operational directives a little bit um, and structurally within the government to better sort of address these threats. I mean, how should, is, is there, is there a space for Congress to play here or, or the administration? Like, what, what could, how do we, can we shift the policy here, the structures to make this work better? It's clearly not working well or as well as it could right now. A- any major changes we could see happening or that should be made? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and not to not to dodge it, but but I I I think this is more of a practice than a policy challenge, right? So just just to kind of put it in perspective, and, and we have the examples of um, of federal government agencies, but but we also know that this has impacted uh, private sector firms, and and as Sam said, uh, we'll see how this plays out in the coming weeks in terms of. Of, of additional disclosures. But at, at the end of the day, um, when I talk to, when I talk to CISOs who's, who have been, you know, running hundred miles an hour for the past week, trying to figure out if, if, if they've got anything in their environment that might be com- uh, compromised, uh, they are concerned about what they don't know, right? It gets back to, you know, we, we talked a little bit about cyber hygiene, cyber hygiene and, and best practices, but it gets back to knowing, exactly what you have on your network um, and, and really basic asset management. I mean, I've, I've talked to a number of CISOs who didn't know that they had this software in their environment. It turns out they, they did. Uh, and and, and the, the, the takeaway here, and, and I think this can be applied to, to government as well as private sector, um, it is that, uh, you know, complexity is really the enemy of security. Right. And it's increasingly true. This has always been, been, been a mantra that has, has rung true to practitioners, but it's increasingly true in this age of, of supply chain attacks. And uh, the, the reality is, as we've, uh, as we've you know, accelerated digital transformation, as we've moved to the cloud, particularly in this time of the pandemic, organizations are, are increasing, not decreasing the amount of vendors that they're dealing with. And it's this trend 
um, that attackers are capitalizing on, whether opportunistically or, or uh, in a really deliberate uh, strategic fashion. Um, so, so you know, I, I, I get back to, you know, putting, putting the right practices in place and making sure that you can mitigate what is this growing trend for, for complexity. Our, our research suggests when we, when we talk to uh, practitioners up and down the org chart, but especially at the top, uh, CISOs and, and CIOs, is that they will, uh, they will sacrifice best of breed capabilities, increasingly so, if it means they can consolidate their environments and deal with uh, less complex uh, uh, suppliers and things like that, because they know uh, it's getting harder and harder to manage these. And, and, and you know, as we've seen by this attack, um, there are bad actors that are exploiting um, the, this trend. So I, I think that's, you know, that's, that's something that the federal government can do. That's something that private sector can do um, is really figure out how to, how to directly uh, reduce the risk associated um, with what is, what is a growing trend in, in supply chain uh, attacks. Yeah, no, it's, it's again, another, another really important point. So one, one thing I want to close on um, is, you know, one of the things we've talked about for a long time is this idea that the U S government can and should do more to deter, you know, insert thing here, cyber offensive activity, destructive or deliberate, you know, destructive or, or, or attacks that involve, um, you know, uh, the modification of information, um, you know, uh, breaches, hacks, uh, intelligence collection, right? Um, can can deterrence work in cyberspace? This is a question for all of you. One, can deterrence work in cyberspace? And two, how good are we at it? And if we're not as good as we need to be, what what would you recommend the U.S. government do to get better at deterrence? I'll start with you, Katie. Well, let's see. Deterrence. Um, I look at these things as as a little bit differently, maybe, um, is that increasing the difficulty of accomplishing your goal, you know, because a cyber attack is really just about accomplishing some sort of other goal. It's not just for the, the glory of hacking as it was, you know, when I was a teenager in the late 80s, early 90s, learning how to hack. Um, you know, this, the I think the disruption really needs to be focused on what is what is really the root cause that has enabled this much complexity without, you know, um, all of the major vendors and, and, and the internet infrastructure itself um, addressing these key weaknesses? Like what are the, what are the, what are the reasons why? And it really comes down to, uh, you know, the lack of software liability, right? We've, we've been punting this uh, liability laws for software vulnerabilities for decades and punting it down the road in favor of, you know, promoting more innovation. But the fact of the matter is, it's not, you know, until it actually changes in terms of incentive structure, building more secure software from the ground up, having responsive vulnerability disclosure programs, having a way to do multi-party vulnerability coordination across the supply chain. These are all problems that were well understood for the past couple of decades. And the only reason why that more organizations, including the federal government, haven't built this capability, even though there are literally ISO standards that I helped write that have been out for half a decade now and how to do some of these things, 
you know, the reason they haven't been broadly adopted is economics. It's the bottom line and the incentives that, you know, time getting something to market and and fostering uh, uptime and interoperability is more important, generally speaking, you know, where only recently have the trends been to circumscribe some of those capabilities in favor of security and privacy. So I think that, you know, broadly, we need we need to look at what are the what are the incentives and the levers in place right now that have us all trending towards reactive security instead of proactive security? How can we shift those incentives? And what do we need to do from a policy and legislative standpoint to make that you know true of the United States without sacrificing our technology leadership role in the world without slowing us down? So I think that's really the big question. Yeah, I mean that's that's that is that is a hard hard question to deal with, and I think. Your your uh, your bold advocacy for cyber liability rules is a, is a, is an edgy an edgy thought and one that's going to generate some controversy. Um, Sam, what about you? What do you what do you think we uh, can can deterrence work in this space? Should uh, do we practice deterrence? Are we any good at it? And 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 if we could get better, what would you do if you could do one or two things on the deterrence side of things? Yeah, I, I think deterrence is something that that we definitely can always look at. You know, I think you know for me, looking at it from a strictly government perspective and what sort of the federal government in particular can do on the deterrence front. I think first and foremost, you know, Katie brought up sort of, you know, better defenses and increasing the costs on these malicious actors and executing these types uh, of attacks is is one of the crucial first things. I know, you know, in the past few years, CISA has been, you know, spending a lot of time and sweat equity getting across the federal complex and getting these agencies uh, to a place where it gets harder and it's through like VDP programs, but other initiatives that they're doing, you know, the vulnerability scanning that, that CIS has been doing, but it's, you know, the, these nation state and threat actors, they are to an extent, they're resource constrained too. And if they have to spend too much time dedicated to going after something that's not really worth it, that has a deterrent effect in and of itself. So, you know, good defense. I definitely, Katie, I can't sign on to the liability for for software suppliers, <laughs> but um, but there are sort of security and defensive measures that can increase the cost to, to malicious actors, and and I think that is a, a great uh, great space to be in. You know, there's also that other aspect that I think you wanted to touch on too, Jamil, and I think you know it's what sort of levers does the federal government has at its disposal? Everything from attribution to offensive cyber measures. These these are really broad, big questions. And I, I can almost guarantee that outside of the hunt teams that are out there on federal networks looking for this vulnerability, there are layers of these departments and agencies that I can almost guarantee are having these exact discussions right now. Um, you know, what what is the efficacy of, you know, a direct attribution? We haven't seen one come out from the federal government in this, but attribution does have a deterrent effect to an extent. It doesn't have a deterrent effect on all foreign actors that are out there. Frankly, some don't care and they view sort of attributive aspects like this, whether it comes in an indictment is almost a, a, a badge of honor that they've been recognized and, and called out. Um, but But these are all sorts of capabilities and discussions that that need to be had. And again, on the deterrence front, when you're looking at, you know, more of the proactive cyber measures, you have to really look at um, both the, the risk profile, the motivating factor of the nation state, and also most importantly, what are sort of the 
second order and third order consequences of, of any of these actions. It's, you know, it, it, it is a very complex discussion to have and you can't knock a domino over here without expecting, you know, one at the end of the line to fall. Um, I, I think they're, they're very circumstance-based, they're fact-driven. Um, and I, I think, you know, having the apparatus in the government that really can bring in all those different sp- perspectives, not only from the national security agencies, but also those regulatory agencies, the sector-specific agencies. So those viewpoints, so we recognize the full risk picture and footprint out there, I think is is important. And I, I think we're getting there, but there's, like any federal government program, there's always improvements that, that can be done. But, you know, it at least gives me some level of assurance that that I feel pretty confident that those those thoughts and discussions are, are, are probably happening, if I had to yeah, guess. That makes sense. Well, look, I, you know, from my perspective, I think I think both of you are, have, have raised really important and good points and, and, and things that we really need to think about and debate. You know, from my side, I really do believe that we can get a lot more aggressive on deterrence, right? I think we need to start punching people in the teeth a lot more often. Um, I think we've held back for far too long. Um, this is I'm not sure this is the place to do it, by the way. I just think this was actually a particularly good, if very widespread intelligence collection campaign. I've seen no evidence to suggest that there was destructive um, or, 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 or activities to modify data or the like, which if that was, we could talk about, we could talk about red lines and potential responses. I just don't see uh, the need for some big heavy handed response here because frankly, we're trying to hack their systems every day. They're trying to hack ours. This happens. They got, they've got a couple of big ones over on us. We're gonna get some big ones over on them. We're probably not going to talk about them as, as much as, as much as we'd prefer uh, or we might like, but at the end of the day, for me, deterrence is about things where people don't do what is sort of acceptable. They cross a line, and then you need to punch it back. We don't, we don't do enough of that today. I do like our persistent engagement defending forward. I think that I think we need to be doing more of that. I'm hopeful that this administration will roll out uh, a more aggressive uh, side of that. But then again, I do think about it's all about offense winning, and there are a lot of people, by the way, who think it's really about defense. And so I dare say, I bet this group will debate that issue for long, uh, long to come. Uh, I think that's all we have from here. Um, Grant, anything from you uh, to close us out on on this issue uh, and this topic? So I think just one question that I'd love to go around the horn on would be, what is the next uh, version of this? We saw an attack on OPM many moons ago that many of us got wrapped up into. Uh, this most recent one on treasury, commerce, and possibly broader. Who do you think is the next target? And what types of tools and tactics should we be expecting in the next two to three years? What I think about a lot, um, and what I know, um, what I know, CISOs are thinking about day in and day out, is um, how this crosses over to the operational domain. Right? Um, we're seeing a, a, a great deal of convergence between IT networks and operational technology networks, um, and there's there's uh, a, a Still, a lot of work to do around governing that that convergence and the intersection of of the data world and the operations world. Um, I think a lot about um, how these types of supply chain attacks uh, could threaten organizations that are that are uh, heavily dependent on on uh, availability and uptime of, of operational networks, um, but at the same time embracing uh, connectivity. Uh, interconnectivity between the, the the OT side and the IT side and the cloud. So I think we got to be very mindful of um, you know how the, the 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 software and hardware vendors that penetrate that space 
uh, could be susceptible to to similar attacks uh, and, and learn from this. Yeah, no, it's a, no, it's a great point. Um, and, this, and the ITOT overlap is, is a critical one and the, and the hardware software uh, piece is, 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 a, is an important one too. Uh, Katie, what about you? Uh, Grant, Grant threw out an interesting question. What, what's your, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I think, you know, in terms of what comes next, what can we expect? Um, honestly, if we haven't shorn up our defenses, our readiness, our response, we can expect exactly the same over the next few years. It's been going for quite some time. It will continue to go if we do not, um, you know, if we do not do something to, to intercept this. And then one other thing, you know, that, that I wanted to mention here is that we are in the United States, we are, you know, the origins of the internet, the origins of a lot of technology companies. And as a result, our own defenses um, are primary in terms of our, our competing, you know, in the global market, um, not just economically, but from an attack and defense capability standpoint in cybersecurity. And yet we are more functionally dependent on technology than a lot of our adversaries. So something that I want us to keep in mind here for the next couple of years is that we've still got a lot of catching up to do in terms of defense, or why would we see new and more sophisticated attacks if the same old attacks still work, right? There's no reason for threat actors to upgrade their game if we haven't upgraded ours. And then finally, you know, I'd say that look, we we spend a lot of time talking about um, deterrence norms in cyberspace and cyber war and all of those buzzword terms that I'm sure if my friends are playing along, they are, they are drinking. They're drinking along with all those terms. But here's the thing. I feel like we're at the end of our reign as the technological Roman Empire. And we have not taken into account the fact that the Visigoths and the Huns are crossing the Alps on elephants, you know, and we're meanwhile saying elephants are not allowed on the battlefield. That is a bad norm and no nation, you know, should allow elephants. Meanwhile, here they come. Right. So I think that we need to get out of the old world, um, you know, notion of superpowers and understand that we are transitioning into we have transitioned into an era where it's not possible for us to contain these capabilities. The only thing where we can really make a difference in terms of maintaining our standing in this space is heavily investing in some of our defensive capabilities. Well, you know, I love the offense. I, I was a professional hacker for about seven years of my career, but there is a limit to our ability to just play offense when we ourselves are so critically dependent on technology. Yeah, that's no, a that's it's a great it's a great point, and yeah, I do worry that you know to your point about about sort of the the, the Romans, uh, you know, I mean, we, one of the things people have said about where we are as, as a country, right, right now, is that maybe we're seeing the beginning of that decline and fall, right, where we're sort of on the verge, and so I wonder whether uh, you know what you've raised is an aspect of that. Um, you know, Sam, I don't mean to end on such a negative note, but uh, but over, I mean, we are we are. It does sound pretty pretty uh, pretty austere. What, uh, can you can you give us something to hope for, or uh, or some some cause for hope, or is it just a is it just a bad scenario? No, I, I can piggyback both off of what Dave and, and Katie just said. Um, I, I would tend to agree we might not see new sort of radical methodologies for hacking or getting into systems. Um, I, I think the positive aspect and sort of pivoting off what Dave said is this intersection between the cyber world and you know hacks that potentially have physical 
uh, real world implications across sort of infrastructure sectors. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see how you're going to. I'm interested to see how you're going to make that a positive because that actually freaks me well, out. It, it, and well, and one of the things I will say is that you know DHS and CISA in particular in the last few years have started to recognize um, the cross dependencies, and they have done a lot of work in this space. Um, standing up the National Risk Management Center and, you know, pivoting away from sort of the 16 siloed critical infrastructure sectors to the national critical functions. It is a bigger list, but it is a matrix list looking for those cross dependencies and being able to identify sort of foundational infrastructure nodes and aspects, whether it's ICT, communications technology, Internet how those go to support sort of the physical systems. There is still a lot of work that needs to be done in mapping those out. And the government, especially, I believe, needs to be very collaborative with the private sector and sort of mapping out and identifying those cross dependencies. I think a lot of that work has started to begin. And, you know, they've started looking at aspects like things that came out in the last few years, the executive order on uh, 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 to mitigate EMP impacts or looking at position navigation and timing systems. These are all sort of interdependent systems. It's a very complex ecosystem that's out there. And I think the positive note um, uh, is the government's looking out there and the government's actively leveraging those public-private partnerships to be able to mass, map out those risk vulnerabilities. So um, I, I think, you know, the positive note is we are making progress and we are making improvements. Listen, sometimes that is the best you can hope for. On that note, thanks to Katie, Sam, Dave for the great insights. Grant, thank you for running this thing. Uh, for those of you listening, this is NSI Live. We've got two other amazing podcasts. Uh, we've got NSI's Fault Lines uh, flagship podcast and our awesome uh, co-hosted podcast with uh, the amazing one of the intelligence community called Iron Butterfly. Definitely tune in, listen to those, follow them. Follow us on Twitter at Mason Natsek. Check us out on LinkedIn. Uh, thanks everybody, really appreciate it. Great conversation. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.